Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend, Chavruta Aaron Gordon. Mm-hmm. Our DAP today, Masacha Babakama, DAP Ayan Bet, page 72. Well, we're going to go back to one of the uh, halachot that the Mishnah taught us, which was that if somebody slaughters and it's found to be a trefa, um, or he slaughters that animal in a uh, non-consecrated animal in the temple courtyard in the Azara, um, he would he would still pay um, the fourfold or fivefold payment. Uh, so the Gemara from here uh, is basically going to make an inference uh, that somebody who steals an ox or a sheep and then slaughters it as a non-consecrated animal in the temple courtyard is going to pay. And so this is the discussion that comes. So Rav Chabibi, the Mechosen, says to Ravashi, Learn from this that Shechita is only at the end of the slaughtering procedure. So what Rav Chabibi is trying to say is, is that when our Mishnah says that somebody who steals an ox or a sheep and then slaughters it as a non-consecrated animal in the in the Azara is high up to pay that fourfold or fivefold payment. It shows that Shrita, right, only happens at the end of the slaughtering uh, of the slaughtering. In other words, the moment of Shrita is, is when the trachea and the esophagus are cut off in half. Because basically, uh, the animal that the thief slaughtered, right, really belongs to the owner the whole time that he's slaughtering it. And it's only at the end of the, sl- when he does with the end of the shrita, right? That it's considered an act of slaughtering an a-, a non-consecrated animal in the temple courtyard. Okay, just bear with me because this is a little bit, uh, it's paying attention to the to the language here. For shrita is from the beginning to the end of the slaughtering. Right. In other words, if shchita occurs, if we say that the, the the slaughtering happens from the beginning of the action, then the question would be why the thief would pay a, this fourfold or fivefold payment when he slaughters a stolen, non-consecrated animal in the temple courtyard. Why? porta asara, because once the thief cuts it a little, he made it forbidden. Right. Because what we know is, is that if you slaughter a non-consecrated animal in the courtyard of the temple, um, you're not allowed to eat it. Remember, and that's why Rabbi Shimon disagrees with the last two opinions of that Mishnah, because he says if it's trafe or it's this non-consecrated animal in the Azara and you're not allowed to eat it, you're not going to be chaya for something that you couldn't eat because we only do shrita in order to eat it. So his point is, is that if shrita, if we say like something is slaughtered, right, we can, we quali- we qualify it as being uh, slaughtered, and that is at the beginning of the action, right, then why is it that if he, then it should be that if he cut it a little bit, the thief, he already made it forbidden. So therefore, when he cuts the rest of the animal, right, in order to like really finish it, but the beginning is what really uh, uh, you know, w- the beginning is when he did it. It's not the animal of the original owner that he is slaughtering. In other words, once he makes that animal forbidden, it's forbidden to be eaten because it's a non-consecrated animal being slaughtered in the courtyard of the temple. That transforms it, right? Remember, we talked a lot about like if you could transform an animal in a way, 
And now it no longer really was the same animal that belonged to the owner. Okay, Anne, did you get that? Because that that took me a while to actually uh, to actually to actually figure out. So it, it it's kind of getting back to our it's getting back to our question of sort of can the animal be sort of transformed in a way because the fourfold and fivefold payment only happens you know after the owner sort of uh what we talked about before on yesterday's stuff that the 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 fivefold and fourfold payment happens once the slaughtering is complete and the owner sort of in a way loses all i don't want to say rights but like it's just not his animal anymore you shafted it so you really change the animal. It's not his animal anymore. Whereas here, what 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 Rav Chavivi is trying to say is, is that if shchita takes place, if slaughtering takes place at the beginning of the action, then you made it a forbidden animal. And that also is not the animal of the owner anymore, right? It's a forbidden animal. It's not an animal that had the potential to be eaten. So it's an interesting idea that he tries to get from this Mishnah, which is to make this inference about the process of Shrita itself. So the Gemara doesn't like this. Amar le Rafuna berates Rava. So Rafuna, the son of Rava, says to him, Ki kamachayev ahahu porta. When he's chayev in our Mishnah, right? When he's chayev to have to pay this payment for slaughtering the stolen animal, a non consecrated animal in the temple courtyard, is it for that little portion, right? Um, in other words, what, what he's trying to say here is, is that the the when the thief becomes chaya for slaughtering, it's as soon yeah you're right it's actually as soon as he starts to to cut it, and at that point because it still belonged to the original owner it has nothing to do with whether or not it became uh, forbidden later. So the gemara again is going to try to figure this out. Amrle Ravachi so Ravachi says to him lo do not reject Rav Chavivi's proof utivacho kulo ba'inan veleka. The Pasuk says, and he slaughters it. So we could infer from the language, not just of the Mishnah, but actually from the Pasuk itself, that when he slaughters, it means it has to be the entirety of it. You have to finish the act of Shrita, right? Vileka, and this is lacking. He only did a little bit of it. And so the Gemara says, Elakasha, then this is actually, this is difficult, right? If Shrita is, you know, has to be a full act, what you start at the beginning till the end, then that non-consecrated animal that was slaughtered in the temple courtyard actually did become prohibited right from the initial cutting that took place. So then how could we say that the thief actually would be Chayab? So the Gemara is going to answer here. Amar Le Rav Ashi said to him, Hachi Amar Rav Kamda Mishmei de Rava. Rav Kamda said in the name of Rava, Kagon Shashachat Miksat Simanim Bachutz Gmarim Bifnim. So this is like a classic Gemara answer, that in other words, to figure out this solution, we have to create a set of circumstances for the case that are not clear in the Mishnah itself in order to make this work. That when the Mishnah says that the thief has to pay this fourfold or fivefold payment for slaughtering the animal that's non-consecrated in the temple courtyard, it's a case where he slaughtered part of the pipes, right? He started to slaughter the trachea and the esophagus outside but he only completed it inside because if he started it inside he made it forbidden right away and then it's sort of like it doesn't make a difference anymore there's no way that that could have been an eaten animal you already took away the ownership from the owner from there the gemara is going to give a little bit of a different version 
of that discussion. And that will take us to the next mission of which, Anne, you're going to read. I'm going to stop reading here. Um, but I think it's a, it's a very, I, I think this goes back to, so first of all, this is trying to tease out, I think, the limits of you know, understanding sort of shita, which is something we will get to later on. We'll discuss this much more in Hulan. Um, but in other words, what do we consider a full act of slaughtering? And the way that they tease this out is with this case where something would actually be forbidden because of the location of where you slaughtered it. And so the question then becomes, when did it actually become forbidden? Is it from the time you started slaughtering or is it at the end of slaughtering? And then the second piece of this is, is that, again, this goes back to that there's something about this case of the se and the shore, right? This idea that you stole this animal, you either sold it or you slaughtered it, that you somehow trans through that act, you transform its connection to the owner. And that's why you're going to end up paying more. That's why you pay fourfold and fivefold. But here the question becomes, if there's something else in between, right? And I think that was a lot of what the discussion of Yeish was. Here the discussion is, if you do an act of slaughtering that forbiddens it before that act is complete, maybe you wouldn't actually have to pay the fourfold or fivefold payment because it's not your action that severed that relationship, right? It's not, it's, it, it wasn't your action that did it. In this case, it would be, the animal became, you know, not edible anymore. And so therefore, you know, if you shucked an animal, if you shucked a stolen animal that's not edible, right? The same as a trefa, uh, you're just, you know, you're not gonna, why, why should you necessarily, you know, well, I shouldn't say that because the mission says you do pay for the trefa. But in other words, if you're shefting an animal that is, you know, non-edible, right, that you can't get benefit from anymore, you know, then maybe you shouldn't actually have to pay the fourfold or fivefold payment. So I find it really interesting that as much as we talk about civil law, and yes, civil law is part of the Torah and everything like that, but we often relate to it, I often relate to it as something that's really very different than the ritual law, the holiness, the temple stuff. And here we're seeing so much comparison, not just today, you know, between or, or you know, the, the basis of comparison to arrive at the conclusion with regard to the civil law stuff, the theft and so on, is rooted in the consecration and those parameters. And I, I don't have a real, you know, a good explanation for why that might be. It might just be that cases can be parallel, you know, regardless of the what, like the environment in which those halakha pertain. But on the other hand, there's something kind of, I don't know, something interesting to me that the civil law, that enough of the halakha in the in the ben adam chaveiro categories, in the man-to-man categories, person-to-person uh, -person categories, um, is then still based on the person-to-God categories of halakha. I don't know. It's I, an observation. I think it's because it's holistic, actually. Like, that's what I think. I, I think it's showing you that our system of law is holistic. It's not split up into like civil law versus Shabbos law. It's all one part of one system. Okay, that works. Meaning, so then the the fact that we draw these kinds of distinctions between what's more between a person and him or herself or a person and God and person and another person, there are like they work as categories, but also there's something artificial about them because really we're going to say the system is holistic and and of course we're gonna borrow from the different those categories for the sake of 
understanding each thing that we're doing in a in a more profound kind of way. Yes, exactly. I, I think it's that it's all one system. We're we're creating the categories, but the system oh. actually doesn't recognize those categories. I like a civil law is just as important as a law about Shabbos. I like that a lot. Or a law about Shrita or a law about the temple. Right, right, right. Um, clearly they have different consequences, right? Like if you do it wrong, but that makes sense too. Okay, I'm going to now jump to, I'm going to bet where we have a new Mishnah. Um, the Mishnah is not long, but not short. So what happens? We have a case if a person stole a, stole an ox or a sheep, and then it you know the it's al pishnaim. It was um, established on the basis of two, meaning witnesses saw this happen and can testify to it. And then right, the thief then he he either slaughters the animal or he sold it. And then al pihen al pihen meaning on the basis of the testimony of those same two witnesses that saw him steal it. And then they're found out to be what is often translated as conspiring witnesses or plotting, P-L-O-T-T-I-N-G, plotting witnesses, people who have made a plan kind of to trip up the person they're testifying against under circumstances where they could not have ever been present to be able to give that testimony. It's like you say, I saw I saw the thief steal the item from that store. And then it does, you know, it's discovered afterwards that you couldn't have seen the thief steal the item from the store because you were in Tahiti at the time, right? Meaning you were far away. And it's not that the thief didn't steal the, the thing. He might have. But you, as a witness, are not legitimate to, to bring testimony to that event. So that's what an aid zomim is, and we're going to spend a lot of time in this when we come in particular to Masachat Makot. But here, they're found, these witnesses who, again, they testified to the theft, and they testified either to the slaughter or the sale of the animals by the thief. Now they're found, discovered to be, you know, their testimony is no good. So what's the bottom line? The witnesses have to pay everything because there's a halacha that the witnesses have done to them what they were planning to do against the other person with their testimony. Testimony, right? There's a as they plotted or as they planned or conspired to do against the other person, meaning in this case against the person that they that who is being declared a thief on the basis of their testimony, and he would then have to function as the thief and payback, they're going to have to do the payback. That's the very beginning of the Mishnah, this discussion of Adam Zolamin, which is, I guess, would say unexpected here, I think, maybe because I think of it more in the discussion of the court case, but here's how we see that could really have relevance on the on the alleged perpetrator of a crime. Okay, now the Mishnah goes on. Ganav al pishnaim what happens if you have two who testify to the theft and another two, meaning a different group of witnesses who are testifying to the fact that that same person um, now either slaughtered or sold the animal, meaning the first two don't know what happened later, or if they do, that's not their testimony. And likewise, the second two were testi testifying to the, the slaughter or the purchase. They were not there, let's say, to see that the thief, that, the, that there was a theft to begin with. 
So the Mishnah here says, And then it's discovered, talk about a conspiracy theory. That's exactly what happens here. All four of these people, meaning both segments of the witnessing of the witnesses are discovered to be conspiring, plotting witnesses. They clearly really have it in for this guy who they're telling everybody's a thief. So what happens? The, the halacha is that the first two who said that they saw him being a thief, they have to pay double because that's exactly kasher kasher that they plotted to do against him because they say he's a thief, and then the thief has to pay double. So now they have to pay the double. But the second set that said that they saw the guy either slaughter or sell the animal, what do they have to do? They have to pay a threefold payment. Um, it gets more specific depending on the animal. The threefold payment is like the basis for an ox, right? Where, again, like the the idea that they were plotting against the original owner that he was going to have to pay above the kefel because, uh, the, because of the way this, you know, is it theft or is it not theft? So they're claiming that he's a thief, he should have had to pay two, right? He should have had to pay double um, or maybe three for an ox. Why? Because the whole idea is that they've set it up that he's going to have to pay over and above the regular amount. Now, last case. What happens if only the second set of witnesses were found to be conspiring, plotting witnesses? Meaning, yes, they somebody really saw the guy steal. He really did steal. But now the, there's a group of people who are testifying against him in a conspiracy kind of way, namely to say that, you know, he, he sold it or slaughtered the animal that he had stolen. Meaning by virtue of the fact that there's clear testimony that he stole, he pays the double. But they pay the threefold payment, meaning the amount over and above the double payment, which is what they were conspiring that he should have to pay. They're going to say to the halacha is that they have to be the ones to come forward and pay it. But what happens if only one of them, and this is a difficult case to, to conjure up, because to say that only one of them was a plotting, conspiring witness, it kind of doesn't work, right? To say they weren't both in on it. So the testimony is considered nothing. But if it's determined that one of the two witnesses at the beginning who said that, oh, this guy stole, right? if one of them is determined to be an Eidzome, meaning a conspiracy theory witness who didn't really see what he says that he saw, well, then that knocks down all of the people who might have also been there to see it unless there was some, you know, extenuating circumstances to allow for it. She'im ein geneva. Because the claim here is that as much as you have um, the, if you if you don't have theft, it says it in the negative, right? If you don't have theft in that case, then you can't have the slaughter or the selling, the sale of the animal, because what happened with the animal to begin with? Meaning that's exactly the point here of this last little bit of the Mishnah, right? That if you'd want to discover that one of the first the first witnesses was a conspiring, plotting witness, an aid domain, and then everything uh, you know that you know up until this point has been canceled, has been you know negated by that um, testimony. Um, so whatever, what happens then is that we're going to say there's no liability of this person who's been alleged as a thief for slaughtering or for selling.
Meaning that there's no, it's just not down. Fine. The Gemara here, of course, picks up on the, the issue of conspiring witnesses, right? And he, it says, Itamar, Eid Zomim, Abaya Amar, Lamafreyahu Nifsal, Rav Amar, Mikan Vlahabahu Nifsal. The question is, how, when do you say that conspiracy testimony that you gave negates all of your testimony? Meaning, forever, going forward, what, right? So Abai says he's disqualified after the fact, retroactively, from the time that he testified until now, meaning any testimony in that time is going to be considered canceled. Reva says, no, the testimony that he gave before stands, and he's only disqualified from the time that he's been proven to be a conspiring witness. So that's a really different assessment of these witnesses to begin with. Um, and Ligamaya then goes on to discuss, you know, why they each have these different opinions, and it's going to carry us on to the next stuff as well. But I, I just, I think the whole appearance here of conspiring witnesses against the thief who's already being a thief, right? But they want to take it a step further and kind of, you know, rig the whole case against him. I mean, he's kind of done that for himself, but they make it worse. I find it fascinating. It's not what I would necessarily expect the Gemara to be talking here about, you know, in the context of a thief, that suddenly we've got people plotting against the thief. Yeah, it is kind of like a very niche uh, topic, but it does make sense that once, if the whole idea of having to pay the fourfold or fivefold payment is contingent on witnesses testifying that you did it, then obviously the issue of Adim Zomimim is really going to come into play here. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think any time we start where it's not a court decision, but a witness testimony factors in, I think we're always going to end up discussing conspiring witnesses at some point. That's a really good way to say it, right? Because I think we, you know, again, you and I are used to like the American system, which is like a judge with the jury. That's not the, the halachic system, right? The halachic system does have some cases that are determined by a Beitian. But a lot of cases are determined by witnesses, right? You have to have witnesses. You have to have like proof Two people who said they saw it. I mean, in a way, I think of it today as like, you know, it's like bringing something in from your cell phone, right? Like a video that's recorded. They obviously didn't have that. So you need to have two people who say uh, that it's true. And the same way that people can make things up or make things look made up, right? That's recorded. So you can have the same thing to wit. Two people could get together and say like, hey, we're going to make this up. Well, we, we can pass ourselves off as a pair of witnesses, but it just may not be true. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us reviews where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff. Thank you to Rebbe Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.